Welcome to the Natural Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Join us as we interview expert clinicians, researchers and well-being experts from around the world and explore the evidence and application of complementary medicine in global healthcare. The following podcast is intended as professional information for integrated practitioners and as such must not be taken as medical advice. Patients are expressly directed to seek appropriate care from a suitably qualified practitioner. Natural Medicine Partners. Hi everyone, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and we're here today with Rebecca Hughes. We're going to be talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome. How are you going Rebecca? I'm great, thank you. That's good. Over in Western Australia, otherwise known as Wait A While, is that right? Or are you back in Melbourne? I'm temporarily a resident in Western Australia, <laughs> yes, but I'll be coming back to my place of practice uh, in Melbourne soon. Yeah. Yeah. But a great place in the world, I've got to say. I just oh, I fell delightful. in love with West Australia, with Margaret River and around there. It was awesome. Um, so firstly, for our audience, can you just give us a little bit of your background, please, and why you're so interested in polycystic ovarian syndrome? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I'm a functional medicine and naturopathic practitioner. And I guess what that means is that I'm a naturopath and I've done additional training in functional medicine. And I treat a lot of women with acne which tends to be a symptom of polycystic ovarian syndrome I don't necessarily think of acne in and of itself as a conditional disease because I find mostly it's a it's a symptom of some kind of hormonal imbalance and it tends to be tied in with androgen excess and PCOS etc so I yeah I treat a lot of women who are having um, hormonal regulation issues and that's my that's my interest with PCOS but also I think I'm quite passionate about the maybe the misdiagnosis that I feel that happens with polycystic ovarian syndrome and also sort of unnecessary early intervention with the oral contraceptive pill. Right. Okay. So I guess first then we have to do a definition. What exactly is and isn't polycystic ovarian syndrome? Well, I guess, I guess that's not even straightforward itself. There's a couple of different um diagnostic criterias, but I suppose I think it's the Rotterdam criteria that's considered to be the, the most accepted where you okay. meet two out of the three uh, primary clinical symptoms, which is uh, absence of periods or irregular periods, um, presence of androgens like testosterone in the blood or signs of androgens, um, for example, hirsutism or acne, and then also cystic ovaries. So two out of three is required in those criteria to meet the diagnostic criteria. So you'll notice that having cystic ovaries is not actually required to meet the diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And probably because cystic ovaries actually occur in other presentations as well, like hypothalamic amenorrhea. So you can't necessarily say that just because a patient has cystic ovaries that they have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I think that's one of the key misunderstandings and it's probably because of the name I mean really the condition should be renamed <laughs> because you don't have to have cystic ovaries in order to meet the diagnostic criteria. Okay that's an interesting one because I would have thought that it would have been polycystic ovaries and a number of the other criteria rather yeah. than or. Um, that's okay that's very interesting. <laughs> I have no, like, it really does need to be renamed because the name doesn't make sense. It's misleading. Can I also ask about testosterone? But, um, I look at blood levels of 
testosterone and the free androgen index and um but that's kind of all you can really see in blood mm. i as from a functional medicine perspective uh from diagnosis i also use uh urine metabolite testing because i can get more detailed information from mm -hmm. urine metabolites for example i can get information about 5 alpha dht which is a much more potent form of testosterone so it's further yeah. down the the chemical cascade but it tends to be more androgenic than testosterone itself and that um i well it mustn't be able to be detected in blood because it's certainly not tested routinely in australia in blood and um, and also what i can see from the um, urinary metabolite testing is whether a patient metabolizes preferentially down the alpha or the beta pathway mm -hmm. and that's going to be consistent with their progesterone and their testosterone so they'll they'll favor one way or the other and alpha metabolism of androgens tends to those patients tend to be more androgenic so whether it's elevations in androstenedione testosterone 5 alpha dht um it's if it's got an alpha preference if they swing towards the alpha then they'll be more androgenic in general so sometimes you don't even see sometimes you don't see elevated testosterone or 5 alpha dht but you will see elevated androstenedione and then i would regard that still as an androgenic picture right okay because that's because androstenedione is above testosterone and the hmm. estrogens in the sort of cascade, if you like. That so are we talking about enzyme malfunction here or are we talking about aromatization because of other influences on tissues? Uh, I think there's a few things at play and I suppose that's why there's, I think true um, PCOS has to have some level of androgens elevated whatever those androgens are and right. yeah there could be um genetic gene mutations sorry that are coding for enzymes that then affect which way the testosterone is being metabolized so that's one thing and then there's of course gene mutations in how estrogen gets metabolized as well so the same um functional test for urinary metabolites Will give you lots of detailed information about phase one and phase two uh, detoxification of estrogens and sometimes and well oftentimes i will see in those patients that are having issues with testosterone will also be having issues clearing estrogens so i think there's either estrogen detoxification issues or if there's the presence of inflammation from some other factor in mm. their health because let's face it um it's not like people walk through the door with just one thing going on i mean that's oh. quite unusual and and so inflammation perhaps from their digestion from food sensitivities from maybe enough from an autoimmune condition could be creating generalized inflammation that's driving up dhas for example and then contributing to like an inflammatory picture that looks like polycystic ovarian syndrome gotcha let's talk a little bit more about these differentials because you mentioned um you know like a couple of the criteria before but we need to tease it apart about when is it not polycystic ovarian syndrome or what symptoms can yeah. be confused with polycystic ovarian yeah. syndrome so what sort of differentials do we have to be looking at here what sort of other conditions are important well firstly i guess i would consider hypothalamic amenorrhea which can also have a cystic ovarian appearance so therefore i guess that's the mistaken um diagnosis is one of the most obvious and that's 
generally associated with um, a calorie deficit. So some, basically some women require more carbohydrates and energy than others to actually ovulate. And that's ancestral in origin as to whether they do or don't. Um, and, so, and that's the type of amenorrhea that you might see more commonly in uh, women who are elite athletes or they might've become underweight for some other reason. I suppose what has to be considered there is eating disorders or body dysmorphia that can lead to hypothalamic amenorrhea. And, um, and you'll see different bloods there as well. Like you won't see high luteinizing hormone in, in hypothalamic amenorrhea, but you will see it in PCOS because luteinizing hormone is that gonadotrophic hormone that's you know, signaling from the hypothalamus to the ovaries to release the follicle from, sorry, to release the egg from the follicle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think hyperprolactinemia or latent hyperprolactinemia often get uh, unexamined. Um, and so sometimes hyperprolactin shows up in blood. It's a bit like testosterone. You can either have high amounts of it in the blood and the symptoms of it, or sometimes you just have the symptoms of it, which for women is usually before their period, extreme um, breast tenderness and engorgement. And in some quite extreme cases, they might even have a little bit of lactation as yep. well. Yeah. Yep. And and high prolactin suppresses ovulation. So of course you're going to see irregularity in periods when you've got high prolactin. So they're they're two of for me, two of the more obvious um, diagnoses that that can be overlooked in the diagnosis yep. of PCOS. And if the the I think an early, a too early diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome or any ovarian irregularity, actually, um, because teenage girls are growing and developing and their cycle is growing and developing with them. And I noticed that sometimes they're being diagnosed with PCOS early in life, like still in their adolescence, which I, I think that's premature. That's my mm. personal opinion about it. But I, I think that... Um, Teenage girls can definitely have a multifollicular appearance of their ovaries because they're highly fertile. Yeah. And and to then interfere with that and label them with a with a diagnosis and that generally follows with a with a medication, I, I think we're interfering, maybe we're, we're over-pathologizing. Yes. And and I think now these guidelines have changed in Australia. And I'm, forgive me if this is wrong, but I thought it was the work of Monash University that came out with a, yeah. a polycystic ovarian syndrome app. Um, and the guidelines. You, yeah. And the yeah. guidelines. Yeah. But the app is interesting because you put in the information and it basically, but it sort hmm. of gives you a guidance as to what should be your next step for care. How do you look at assessing women who come into your practice um, to, you know, look at what's really happening. I find some of the most useful information that you can get from a patient is like, what was the age of onset of their period? Um, I see a pattern of late onset of menses is, is often um, apparent in, in polycystic ovarian syndrome or ovarian dysregulation. Let, let's just call it that, you know, instead of giving it the, the label that might not be appropriate. Um, and, and also their family history. Because I find often if there are uh, menstrual irregularities, it's rare that it shows up just in one member of the family. Generally, there are, there's a pattern in the family. And I don't just ask about the women, actually, because 
5-alpha DHT is the same hormone that drives benign prostatic hyperplasia and it right. drives prostate cancer. It drives um, early baldness in men. So I will be asking questions about both sides of the family just to see, just to get, to gain information about the, the general hormonal pattern in their family. And then also I don't rule out other endocrine involvement for until I've done any adequate testing. So usually um, I'll test their thyroid function as well as their gonadal function and adrenal function because I see them all as one uh, interrelated network that are in a, a bit of a dance with one another. And even slightly underperforming or overperforming thyroids can have quite a big effect on ovarian function. And of course, uh, adrenal function, if there's, a, if, if there's a great deal of stress and cortisol production, that's going to uh, steal away prenenolone uh, away from the sex hormone axis so that it can't be used to make progesterone, which is essentially, you know, involved with ovulation. So there's a few, there's a few functional medicine assessments that I do in, in addition to that uh, urinary hormone test. And then if the patient is, like I said, presenting with other symptoms or they might have food sensitivities, et cetera, then it, whilst that might seem peripheral and not related directly to the menstrual irregularity, um, I can't assume how, how little or how much it is related to, to their periods. So I guess I'm casting the net quite wide to start with and assessing all of the function of the person and then narrowing it down. But things like, you know, you've spoken about familial uh, factors. So there's your genetics coming into play. But when you're looking at physical factors, you've spoken about acne, hirsutism. And I'm just wondering about, because there's a higher amount of androgens, do you find that women have, these women have um, emotional liability as a major concern or... What about things like sex drive or libido um, and things like that? How, like, how do they play the picture in PCOS? Uh, sometimes, I suppose it depends on the hormones that are, that are happening, but um, some women have a higher sex drive. Some of them have an absent sex drive. I guess we haven't talked about insulin resistance yet mm, either. Okay. And, and I think it's more the direction of insulin resistance um, driving, affecting ovulation, which then affects testosterone. But again, it's all, it's a cycle, it's a feedback loop, and they all start negatively affecting one another. And we know that androgenization in women changes body shape, causes it to become, um, you know, thicker around the middle. And so as soon as a woman's waistline starts to expand, whether it be from fat mass or not, that, um, that that's going to affect fertility. So I'm looking at things like um, waist, uh, maybe waist hip ratio. How has weight been over time? Like it, have there been um, un, unexplained weight gains and losses, difficulty in losing weight, uh, overtraining, uh, under eating, like all of that, all of those changes that can, that, that can really affect ovulation. Because ovulation is the... It's the event. And if you think, if you, if you wind it all the way back into 
evolution and survival of the species that's sometimes how I how I think about it is like what is this body trying to do and and if it's being if you're in a state of inflammation is it a good time to create another human being if you're in a state of high stress is it a good time for this body to to reproduce I sometimes talk to my patients from from that perspective of all the things that could be affecting their ovarian function you said things about the body shape earlier and mm. previously the I think there was five criteria for polycystic ovarian syndrome there was like um hypercholesterolemia was one of them the apple-shaped obesity was commonly noted you know that sort of um almost a cortisol like a cushing yeah. type thing um, but in fact we see women that don't have that body shape at all hmm. but are these the women that are doing that overtraining? they're the sort of um disciplined in maintaining a, a more even body weight well i guess there's both i mean like i said i think androgens i think androgens are the key hallmark of actual i think that's actual polycystic ovarian syndrome and then some women don't have high androgens or their androgens are maybe high normal, but actually their ovarian picture is being driven more by insulin resistance. Right. So that's that's one type. I mean, I, I also, I'm talking about types like they're these clean cut categories. Yeah. And yeah. in actual fact, that's sort of like textbook medicine. And it's rare to see, it, it's rare to see patients that just fit into one diagnostic category. Like they only have high androgens and that's it, for example. Got it. Um, so I think there's, there are considerations around androgens, around insulin and body shape, around inflammation, and then around um, adrenal function as well. So some often I'll, I've actually just started testing more frequently for ACTH and to go along with the cortisol information that I collect from urinary metabolites, because I'm trying to see if there's some kind of adrenal picture that's influencing the ovarian function as well well let's mm. talk further about treatments then because i guess this is where the where, where the real meaty sort of stuff begins in the podcast so how do you help these patients where do you start is it always with diet is it always with um you know sort of um if they're overweight weight intervention is that the place to start or do you start on a more gentle um nourishing um avenue like supporting the adrenals you were talking about mm. Well, let's presume that, so in the, if it was something like hypothalamic amenorrhea, that would be a completely different treatment mm, plan. And absolutely. that would be about increasing energy, actually, and increasing carbohydrates, which for a lot of women is not a favourite thing to do. Yeah. And, and I do wonder, actually, and it's just a wondering, I don't know because I don't have any solid data on it, but, you know, in the last 10 years we've seen really high popularity of high protein, high fat, low carbohydrate diet, diets. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder what that's actually doing to uh, women during their fertile years and their ability to ovulate effectively and in a, in a healthy, reliable way. So there is that in the background as a consideration because that's no longer unusual. Like a lot of people participate in those kinds of diets. So yeah. That's why I think, you know, you, you've still got to maintain carbohydrates to ovulate. Yeah. So that's, that's around that amenorrhea picture. But if it really is androgen-driven PCOS and maybe with some estrogen 
Uh, well, it depends on what the estrogen and the progesterone is, is doing. Um, then I usually am focusing on how can we get this, this woman to ovulate? Like that's the, that's the main thing that I'm concerned about. So there'll be, uh, and so I sort of bring, I guess, a multifactorial approach to it. So instead of just interfering with or trying to affect one pathway, because it's all, it's a constellation, that's why it's called a syndrome, because there's a constellation of various different biological activities happening all at the same time. So I don't think that just by um, interrupting one of those is going to have enough of an effect. And, and you know, generally speaking, people do want results fairly quickly. The other, the other factor to keep in mind is that it is about 100 days to ovulation, like from the formation of the follicle and its dormancy all the way through to, to actual ovulation is about 100 days. So it's also about managing patient expectations that we may not actually see any results for at least three months. Um, but we're preparing for it, mm. right? Mm. And, and so I look at um, herbs that will uh, enhance ovulation, so via the hypothalamus. And so the main thing we know about that is, the main herb we know for that is Vitex agnus castus. And then herbs that are going to inhibit androgens. And, and that depends, again, a little bit on the results. So if it looks like, um, if it's an elevation in 5-alpha DHT, then I'm more likely to use herbs like saw palmetto and nettle, but sometimes also spearmint to inhibit that enzyme that makes 5-alpha DHT. But okay. if it tends to be more other androgens like testosterone and androstenedione, then I'll probably lean more heavily on herbs like peony and licorice, which is a very traditional and well-studied combination for polycystic ovarian syndrome. I just found that it just sometimes doesn't always cut it when you're dealing with, with quite high elevations in 5-alpha DHT. Sometimes I need to employ other herbs. And then if there is an insulin-resistant picture, supporting glucose metabolism and insulin sensitivity with nutrients and herbs, so things, you know, uh, myo-inositol, chromium, zinc, 5-alpha-lipoic uh, acid, and then cinnamon, gymnema, even philodendron for its berberine-containing herbs, and doing that all at the same time, as well as the, the dietary and lifestyle stuff. But sometimes you've got to kind of got to be careful with these patients because they have really... Um, they've often been dealing with this for a long time and they might have put themselves through a lot of uh, diet and exercise routines that have been already pretty heavy duty and they, they could be exhausted in that department. Um, so I tend to focus on, which I would in any kind of insulin resistant picture if it's present, is on building muscle mass versus losing fat because building muscle mass does increase insulin sensitivity we know that yeah. and and building muscle mass will also increase your basal metabolic rate and if you've got a little bit of extra extra testosterone floating around you might as well harness that that's what i think because testosterone yes. <laughs> helps, build, helps build muscle mass muscle um so that was sort of where i was going with that exercise and stuff like that like um do you concentrate on things like strength exercise first yeah um well, and I'm, also I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of strength training and yeah. and it also depends I suppose 
how overweight the patient is because if they are in a in a very overweight or obese category, doing any kind of aerobic or high intensity training might actually be putting them at risk um, for injury. And that's, that's a bit of a concern of mine. I think if you've got really well supervised strength training, I think that's actually a less risky activity than um, telling someone to go running, for example. You know, there can be too many injuries associated with that. Um, but I'm also wondering about, you know, you've got new forms of collagen on the market now that, that are sort of um, touted for use, being useful for body composition. And I'm wondering if these sorts of types of supplements might be a real aid in those women trying to change their body composition. And I'm also wondering about things like um, um, bitter melon. But I also just remembered I used nigella sativum um, quite a bit as well for okay, great. metabolic optimising metabolism. Is there anything that you tend to steer clear of because you might think it's doing good in this aspect, but it's got a cautionary um, use in, in another aspect of PCOS? I, get, I, I mean, yeah, I guess if during screening I found that the patient had high blood pressure, then probably licorice would be contraindicated unless it was um is it deglycerinized yeah i think yeah. can be uh potential mm. to do that in which case perhaps i i could just use peony for estrogen modulation um flaxseed for estrogen modulation also is really effective and then um yeah so you can tailor treatments in that way and just while i think of it i wanted the opportunity to also speak about traditional medical management a little bit. Yep, yep. Because um, I think one of the greatest uh, things that probably, <laughs> I'll say annoys me, let's just say that, is the uh, overprescription of the, the pill. I believe it's an overprescription for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And the main issue is that it's kind of masking the picture because the, the, the level of hormones in the pill of the estrogens and the progestins are quite potent. They're designed to basically suppress your own hypothalamic axis and suppress ovulation. That's how they work to solve the problems associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome. However, it's really just delaying the inevitable because once the patient comes off the, the pill, all of the ovulatory issues are still there. And I've seen this quite frequently in patients who have been told oh, you need to, if they've got polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's like, stay on the pill until you're ready to fall pregnant. And then when you're ready to fall pregnant, we'll do IVF. Mm, mm, yeah, and, great choices. Yeah, and, <laughs> um, and IVF is a brutal process. So I don't know why you would wish that upon anyone. But also, it's, I think it's also a misunderstanding that women with polycystic ovarian syndrome uh, they're made to believe that they're infertile because of the irregularity of their period. They're yeah. still ovulating. They're not yeah. infertile. They actually still ovulate. And in fact, some of my patients who have um, polycystic ovarian syndrome are some of the most fertile women I've ever treated. You know, they can fall pregnant quite easily. Mm. It's not a it's not a um, a sentence to have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so, I think that's what women are led to believe. And so, they do take the pill because they believe that's the healthiest thing for them to do and and are led to believe that the regularity of the, the 
the the po the pill bleed, which is what it is, it's not a period, it's a pill bleed, means that they're ovulating. But in actual fact, there is no ovulation occurring. Yeah. It's just a breakthrough bleed from um, removing the hormones. And I don't think yeah. that's adequately explained to patients. And I suppose, look, metformin for insulin resistance, if in the case that it's that the it becomes really treatment resistant, I don't I don't see a problem with metformin if the insulin resist if it's going to improve insulin sensitivity and we've tried everything else to do that and and it's not happening it really is important that the insulin resistance is dealt with it is part of the syndrome and spironolactone is traditionally used to reduce androgens and I look it's effective but not in all patients and I think that um, functional and natural medicine has so many more options for reducing androgens beyond spironolactone. And one more thing about the pill is that it contains progestins. It's not real progesterone. Yes. And progestins can actually act like androgens. Yes. They can cause acne, which is why some women experience acne when they go on the pill for the first time in their life. They've never had it before and they start experiencing acne. Sometimes they get the acne after they come off the pill, after they come off the pill, and that's that post-pill PCOS that usually lasts about three months. Um, but some women experience it when they go on there. And so I don't think those those types of progesterones are very useful and actually can be can be harmful. But there's so much more to talk about, Rebecca. This is a big topic. I was wondering, would you mind join, rejoining us for a part two on this topic and we can delve further into certain issues and maybe talk about a couple of case histories that you've um, attended to? Yeah, of course. I'd love that. I I'd love that. So, everyone, I hope you've gotten something um, of worth out of today. I know you will have from Rebecca's. It's something I love about your mind, Rebecca. You, you, you need to answer the why and then, well, why that? And then why that? And you won't stop until you understand it. And I really take my hat off to the care that you give to your patients. Well done. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on Natural Medicine Podcast today. Oh,